0: Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Rev. Dave Kiefer. We've been walking through the book of Proverbs. And as a reminder, chapters 1 through 9 consist of several longer poems that Solomon wrote. Each begins, my sons, and illustrates important lessons by way of extended metaphor. But in chapter 10, and through the rest of the book of Proverbs, the extended metaphors are replaced by pithy statements. Unlike chapters 1 through 9, when you read the rest of Proverbs, it's nearly impossible to anticipate what's next. The subject matter changes nearly every verse. And some commentators suggest that this format reflects how life is lived. We deal with multiple issues every day, even every hour. And so we face issues in Proverbs as we do in real life, just as they come. And this morning the issue we're going to look at is the issue of planning and decision making. Two key questions. What plans should I make? when I have so many good options to consider? Secondly, how how do I know what decision to make when the rules don't help me very much? See, we can decide to do many different things, and none of those decisions break the rules. And it's this type of situation for which Proverbs was written, for when the rules are insufficient, when the rules just don't give us enough clarity as to what the right answer is. For example, there are just a few rules in the Bible about biblical marriage. Biblical marriage is to be between one man and one woman. And if you're a Christian, you are to marry in the Lord another Christian. But that doesn't tell you a whole lot. I mean, it doesn't tell you who exactly you should marry or if this person is a good fit for you or when you should get married. Most decisions, like who to marry, require wisdom, And people can follow all the rules, but unless you have wisdom, you're very likely to ruin your life. You'll hire the wrong person, you'll pursue the wrong career, you may even buy the wrong house, or vote the wrong way. And as one of my Republican friends said, now wait a second, there is a rule for that, it's in Ecclesiastes 10.2. A wise heart inclines him to the right, but the fool to the left. Now, all joking aside, the wise know that's an anachronism, and it's not talking about that. It's simply saying the wise go in one direction and the foolish always go in another. But the point is this. The reality is most of life's decisions require more wisdom, not more rules. In fact, there aren't enough rules that can be written To tell you what to do in every situation. For example, which child's story should I believe when they all come at me at once with very different interpretations of what happened? That requires wisdom. What medical treatment should I pursue? Should I move my family so that I can have a better job or should I stay and see if something develops nearby? These decisions require wisdom and prudence. And God is very clear about the rules, but honestly, he doesn't make that many. He gives us the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. But most of the law, like the Mosaic Law, is actually an outworking of the Ten Commandments. And it's written as case law. In other words, case law requires wisdom to know how to apply these principles in in particular circumstances. What does all this mean? It would seem that God's desire is not to raise up automatons, but royal royal heirs, sons and daughters with wisdom who know what to do in the situation because they know the character of God. They know the ways of God. They know the nature of man in his, in his created, fallen, and redeemed state. And they understand the times in which they live. And this is why as we tackle the topic of planning and decision-making, it's worth noting that Solomon's introductory remarks to the book of Proverbs in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is this. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. And hear this, verse 4, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Notice the key words here, wisdom, instruction in wise dealings, and prudence, to give prudence to those who lack discretion. What is prudence? That's a good SAT word, isn't it? A prude is a prudent person. Now to be called a prude isn't exactly a compliment today, but but prudence transcends the sexual realm. Prudence is what is 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 a unique aspect of wisdom or that unique aspect that has to deal with cause and effect. The prudent person understands how their present decisions play out over time, or are likely to play out over time. Because the prudent person understands the ways of God and the ways of the world, and therefore they can more accurately than most sort of predict of how things are going to play out. And so if they want to end up at point C, they know what to do at point B and point A. Now, inexperienced people lack, you know, well, they lack experience, and they lack knowledge and discretion, which is needed to be prudent, And that is exactly what Solomon writes Proverbs 4. Notice one of the main reasons is to give prudence and he identifies those who will most benefit from it. It's the simple, the inexperienced who could be the young, but you may be inexperienced, not because you're young, but simply because in a certain area of life, you don't know. You don't have experience in that area, and you need to grow in prudence. So as we tackle the topic of wise planning, and we look at the very introductory remarks of Solomon, we can have much anticipation that we can expect the Proverbs to say a lot of good and helpful things about wise planning, because Wise planning has to do with anticipating outcomes and adjusting your choices so that you can get the desired result. So let's pray and then we will dig in. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing your wisdom to us. God, we pray that you would help us to listen to it and to really hear what you have to tell us. Help us not to be wise in our own eyes to think or assume we already know, but help us to be curious. Help us to linger before your word. Help us to look at it yet again and to meditate on it, to reflect on it, and to see how we need to align ourselves to these life-giving words. We pray this for your glory, for our edification, for the good of this church, for the good of the community, and for the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've divided up the relevant words on this topic of planning and decision making into three sections. The three R's of planning responsibility, results, and resources. First, responsibility. Now, when it comes to planning and decision making, Solomon teaches that prudence entails taking responsibility in at least three ways. First, we have to take responsibility to think ahead. Think ahead while working diligently and waiting patiently. Look at Proverbs 28, 19, the first one listed in your bulletin. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Now, wise planning entails discipline, and discipline means you have to avoid worthless pursuits, and you have to set worthwhile goals. As my friend, Dr. Putnam, summarized, Solomon, as you read through the book of Proverbs, consistently encourages planning. And he denigrates carelessness, half-hearted effort, and impulsive activity. And so if you want to have plenty of bread and not plenty of poverty, we need to take the words of Proverbs seriously. We need to plan diligently and work our land. But however, if you notice, Solomon also warns that even the most careful And thorough plan will not necessarily come to fruition. Sometimes bad weather ruins the expected bounty. Despite our best efforts at planning and working the land, there are times when there's no abundance nor plenty of bread. So likewise with our plans with anything else. They can be carried out diligently and planned well, but it doesn't always guarantee the expected results. And so what do we do then? Well, this leads us to our second responsibility for wise decision-making. Our second responsibility is we have to commit our plans, our work to God, and trust him with it all. Trust him with everything. Trust God to adjudicate your methods, your motives, as well as to sovereignly oversee and establish the results. Look at Proverbs 16.3 and 19.21. three says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established 1921 many are the plans in the mind of a man but it is the purpose of the lord that will stand first 163 what does it mean to commit your work to the lord well committing your work to the lord unavoidably carries with it a sense of surrender how so well if i commit something into your hand That means that you now have it and I don't. If I'm still holding on to it, I haven't let go of it into your hand and I still have it in my hand. I have not committed it to you. The command here, or the wisdom principle is commit your work to the Lord. Surrender it to him. Let go. And then it says your plans will be established. Now that's an interesting phrase that I've seen many people try to manipulate. Because contrary to initial impressions, some of us may have about this verse, the sense of surrendering in that second half of the verse is actually reaffirmed and not undermined or contradicted uh, when it says your plans will be established. If you commit your plans to the Lord, he establishes them. But, but how? Well, the ESV translates the Hebrew word as plans, but the word used there more accurately means thoughts. In other words, commit your work to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. And it's understandable why the translators uh, translate it as plans, because in real life we rarely distinguish between our plans and our thoughts. Both deal with expectations. In other words, what I think is often what I expect or plan to see happen. But there is an important distinction here. Solomon is not saying that once you surrender your work to the Lord, your plans will be established as though God is somehow obligated now or blackmailed to follow your plan and establish your plans only after you've sort of, you know, surrendered it to him. People have wrongly taken a similar res- uh, perspective when the work they're committed to finding is, you know, finding a spouse or having a child or, or maybe achieving a, a vocational goal, and their thinking often goes something like this: Well, once I have the right motives, God will give me a spouse or open my womb, or once I surrender my career to God, then He'll really give me the job I want. And the promotion I've been going after. Yeah, nice try. The truth is, we cannot manipulate God to yield to our agenda. He remains God, and we are the servant, and He's never obligated to follow our plan. So, what then is Solomon saying? He's saying, as you commit your work to the Lord, God establishes your thoughts. By directing them in the right paths, he establishes your expectations. The proverb portrays the image of rolling all of our cares and expectations about work upon God like a weight and then experiencing the poise and the relief that comes as he directs our hearts and our thoughts. And we rest our work into his trusting hands, knowing he is good and faithful, and we allow him to do with it what he wants, even if it means disappointment, and even if it means going against our expectations. So how does this apply? You can trust God, not only with your work, but with everything, with all of your plans your methods, your motives, and ultimately, yes, the results. We can trust God to adjudicate it all as he sovereignly establishes his will through it. 1921, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but the Lord's purposes will stand. Motives are notoriously difficult to discern. And the proverb right before the one I put in the bulletin, 16.3, Proverbs 16, 2 clarifies this. Proverbs 16, 2 says, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord is the one who weighs the spirit. And since motives are extremely difficult to discern and establish, we must let God direct us. And this has implications for both the strong and the weak. In other words, for the the self-assured, and the self deprecating how so on the one hand, the strong and self assured never seem to question their motives and methods. they plan and they decide with confidence. they know what is right and best. Just ask them, they will tell you but proverbs sixteen two reminds us that the Lord weighs the spirit. He discerns the motives and desires, the fears and the idols that our own sinful hearts blind us to seeing in ourselves. Now, to be clear on the point, Solomon is not arguing against a right confidence and courage. He's merely reminding us of what we already know to be true by experience, which is the proud lack self-awareness. Their motives are not necessarily as pure as they assume, their methods are not as wise, and the Lord knows the heart better than any man. And we all have blind spots. So if we are wise about our planning and our decision-making, we will hold our plans loosely. And if we are humble, we will welcome good faith challenges to even our motives for carrying out the plan. We will yield and welcome feedback Because people might point out unintended consequences. And this is helpful. The Lord weighs the spirit accurately. There's no false weights on his scales. So that's the one hand for the strong. What about for the weak? On the other hand, the weak and self-deprecating, right? They tend to question themselves into the ground. Their methods are never good enough. Their motives are always tainted with impurities. And if only they had been more patient or maybe more bold or maybe less bold. Or maybe more thorough or maybe less wordy, then then, you know, the plan would have worked. And people would have, you know, maybe embraced their decision. But sixteen two reminds us the Lord weighs the Spirit. 1921, no matter our plans, the Lord's purpose will stand. So how does this apply? The pressure's off. The pressure's off. Solomon isn't saying don't plan carefully. He's only saying as you do your best to plan carefully, Remember, the Lord is the one directing and establishing your steps. So trust him. His purposes will stand. Nor is Solomon saying that you should just try harder or think more critically about it or do more. Some of us get caught in a doom loop of woulda, coulda, shoulda, and you do that over and over and over again, and it's deadly. But but Solomon is reminding us, you never know how things are going to work out in the end. You never know what seeds were planted. Maybe now is not the time for results. Maybe now is the time to wait upon the Lord. Maybe now is the time for for, uh, perseverance. But he does want you to know this, and he wants you to rest in this. As you make plans and as you make decisions, the Lord blesses the work of the diligent, and the purpose of the Lord will stand. So in summary, the first two responsibilities for wise decision-making are... Think ahead while working diligently and waiting patiently. And two, commit your work to God and trust him in everything. Third, third, seek counsel. Don't try to figure it out on your own. Look at Proverbs fifteen twenty two and 27, 9. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Oil and perfume make the heart glad And the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. First, counsel is of immense practical benefit. That's what the first proverb talks about. And and the reality is, right, no individual, no matter how well educated you are, no matter how skilled you are, no matter how experienced you are, you are not going to be as effective as a team of just average people. You can't see your own blind spots. You won't anticipate all possibilities. You need friends, family, co-workers who will ask you questions that you won't consider to ask, who know things you cannot know, and who may be able to take a more objective view of things that, for one reason or another, you're just not willing to be objective about. So, counsel is of immense practical benefit. But secondly, getting counsel is not only immensely beneficial to the wise, practically, it's also immeasurably pleasurable. The wise actually enjoy getting counsel from those who are friends and family members. Notice 27.9. It makes their heart glad as with oil and perfume. See, because through the counseling, they, they grow and enjoy their friendship, and they experience their friends' interest and care and love for them. As it says in the second half there, the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. What a blessing. So there's the responsibilities for planning and making decisions. Think ahead while working diligently and waiting patiently. Commit your work to the Lord. Trust him with everything. And three, seek counsel. Don't try to figure it out on your own. So there's the responsibilities. What about the results? The results of planning? Well, let's take a side-by-side look at the impact of planning and decision-making for two groups of people, for the wicked and the righteous. And as we do, we will see that appearances don't always match reality. And the short-term benefits must be differentiated from the long-term benefits. First, appearances versus reality, 10.3. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry but he thwarts the cravings of the wicked. 10.24, what the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desires of the righteous will be granted. Now let me mention one more that we didn't have room to put in your bulletin. 10.2, which is right before 10.3, says this, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. So there's two sides of the coin here that we need to understand. First, the side of promises. The promise is for the righteous, right? The righteous won't go hungry, the righteous will have their desires fulfilled, and the righteous will be delivered from death. But notice also the other side of the admission, right? The admission. Notice Solomon admits, the wicked can and do obtain treasure. And they gain it by wickedness, all kinds of valuable treasure, wealth, maybe status, comfort, security, acceptance. It's not just the big baddies like the Russian oligarchs and the billionaire playboys that do this, but it may be just the, the rich, good-looking neighbor that lives right next to you that cheats on his taxes and on his spouse. Or maybe it's the coworker who gets promoted after turning a blind eye to some unethical practices in the office. Or maybe it's the student that you were competing with who won the scholarship you applied for, only they used GPT when they did their work. See, unfortunately, when those things happen, sort of that old cliche of nice guys finish last seems more credible than we care to admit. And we start to feel like Asaph from Psalm 77. We're left wondering if... All this hubbub about integrity is really worth it. And in Psalm 77, Asaph confesses his struggle as he assesses the treasures that the wicked accumulate. He writes this, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 4, he continues, their bodies are fat and sleek. Verse 5, they're not in trouble as others are. And they're not stricken like the rest of mankind and skipping down to verse 6. Pride is their necklace. Verse 7, their hearts overflow with follies. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. By all appearances, Asaph is saying, the wicked can look like they're faring much better than the righteous. But Solomon cuts through the smoke and mirrors saying, yeah, that is the appearance. And I admit that is the case. But don't you believe it for a second that they're getting away with anything. If you could only see the big picture, you'd know that nothing could be further from the truth. And he reminds us in 10.2, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. 10.3, the Lord thwarts the cravings of the wicked. 10.24, the wicked dreads, what, what the wicked dreads will come upon him, but what the righteous desire will be granted. See, if you've ever worked much with fools or been a fool yourself, you know that when you're in that certain state of mind, you actually work pretty hard to be ignorant of impending doom or consequences because ignorance is bliss, right? It's not just the Bernie Madoffs of the world that bury evidence of impending doom, right? It happens in smaller ways Every day, right? In the student that boasts in their ability to pull off an all nighter just as well as if they had planned ahead, right? In the gossip who strives to control the narrative with their tales of woe, right? Or in the porn addict who tells themselves repeatedly it's not hurting anyone even as their ability to sustain real intimacy with real people wanes more and more with each passing day. See, appearances are not all reality. We can see through others' deception. Appearance are not always reality, especially when it comes to the flourishing of the wicked. The Lord will always thwart the craving of the wicked. And Proverbs 10.28, which is not listed here, says it even better. It says this, the hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. C.S. Lewis illustrates an important difference between appearances and reality in his fictional story, The Great Divorce. If you've never read it, I encourage you to. I'm reading it through with some young men in our church right now. But the story is about a group of dead people from hell who are given the opportunity, they're allowed to take a bus ride to the outskirts of heaven. It records their experiences. Now Lewis not only illustrates through this very clever story the willful ignorance and stubbornness of a hard heart that refuses to forsake their folly, but also how the cravings of the foolish and the wicked will be by nature unavoidably and necessarily thwarted so that what they dread actually comes upon them while the desires of the righteous, however frustrated initially, are by nature ultimately granted. He writes this, "'What mortals misunderstand "'is that they say of some temporal suffering, "'no future bliss can make up for this, "'not knowing that heaven, once attained, "'will work backwards "'and turn even that agony into glory. "'And of some sinful pleasure they say, "'let me have but this.'" and I'll take its consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of sin. And both processes begin even before death. See, unrepentant sinners cannot long enjoy their ungodly plans, their decision to align with their flesh, with the world, with Satan. It is a fool's errand. They're strategizing to ensure that they get what they want, no matter the cost, will prove their undoing. Their addictions and idols will betray them as their desires increase more and more for what they must have and their satisfaction decreases over what they already do have until until they are enslaved and they become a ghost of the person they once were no longer enjoying the idol, the thing, or the person, or the accomplishment that they couldn't go without. Whereas the righteous who fear the Lord in decisions big and small, and they posture themselves toward God as they turn away from the seductions of the flesh and the world and Satan, as they surrender the idols of the heart to satisfy themselves with the spring of living water, they will increasingly and ultimately see that every hardship, every trial, all pain for the righteous will be reframed by their alignment with God and his purposes for them in Christ. They will truly see his hand was there sustaining them through it all, protecting and providing and changing them, strengthening them. And that's why Lewis adds... The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrow take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled with only dreariness so that in the end, the blessed will say, we've we've never lived anywhere except heaven. And the lost will say, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. Do you see what Lewis is saying here? He's cleverly illustrating the difference between appearances and reality. But there's more. It's not just the difference between appearance and reality that Solomon wants us to see. He wants us to see a distinction between the short-term benefits and the long-term benefits. And Solomon drives home this point in the next verses. Look at 10.7 and 10.25. Short-term versus long-term benefits. The memory of the righteous is a blessing. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever Notice the, the multi-layer and multifaceted nature of the blessings here. The righteous will not just survive the tempest, unlike the wicked, will not just be established forever, but their legacy will be a blessing to others. In other words, it will shine brighter and brighter with the passing days. Contrast it to the name of the wicked, which will what? It will rot. So despite what you hear in the press... Only those aligned to wisdom by fearing the Lord, only those who hold on to the transcendent truth of the Word of God and don't fall for the lie that we need to get past it and grow beyond it and leave it, you know, as an old thing that doesn't relate to today. Only those who cling to the Word of God will be standing on the right side of history because they stand upon His Word. And so the moral of the lesson is given in the next proverb, proverb 23:17: "Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord. The plans of the wicked only lead to frustration and defilement. Their daily choices and long-term plans will lead to an, em- an emaciated humanity. One where their soul is rotten from the inside, and ultimately it leads to a ghostly eternal death. But the plans of the righteous who daily repent of sin, who fear God, not man, will result in a pruned yet fruitful life marked by transcendent and eternal joy. So there's the first two R's of planning wisely. Responsibility understanding your responsibility to align to God's ways and his word and results, differentiating between appearances and the long and term short benefits of your choices. So lastly, the third R of planning, resources. When we talk about resources for planning or decision-making, the thing that first comes to mind for most people, it's either one of two things, right? Human resources, or material resources, right? We want human resources, support, friendship, partnership, teamship, or effective tools, right? Google Calendar uh, software, um, spreadsheets, right? Effective tools. And Proverbs 27:17, it's not listed in the bulletin. Recognizes both types of resources when it says, "Iron sharpens iron, as one man sharpens another." Material resources like iron, tools, can help get the job done. And so we should absolutely use them and we should keep them sharp. But similarly, human resources like a good friendship can help us by sharpening us, by sharpening our thinking and our approach. And if we look at Solomon's life, we know he was truly wise, right? Because he was a master of managing material resources, How else do you think he was able to build the temple and cities and gardens and victorious armies, right? Material resources and learning how to manage them is wise. So if you don't have a calendar, get one. Teenagers, I know your parents have been on you, right? Get a calendar. Learn how to plan on a calendar, okay? Also, welcome people into your life to give you feedback, to give you counsel, to help you consider things you have not considered, right? And these are the things we normally think about. But honestly, as you read through Proverbs, while Solomon evidenced this in his own life, Solomon did not spend a lot of time saying things like, get a Google Calendar. But rather, he focused on the most important resource, which isn't human, and it's not material. It's the divine resource of God himself, Leveraging your relationship with God, learning how to make wise decisions, has everything to do with how you posture yourself toward God. What is central is your posture toward God. Vince Lombardi built a football legacy by starting with first principles. He showed his team a football and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. And similarly, if you want to build a legacy of wise planning and decision making, let me hold up Proverbs to you, like Vince Lombardi held up that football and said, ladies and gentlemen, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's our first principle. And if we are to have any hope of learning how to plan well, we must choose to fear the Lord. And reject the fear of man. We must commit and then recommit ourselves to living in the fear of the Lord. We live in God's world. And so we must orient all our plans and decisions in light of the fact that the God of the Bible actually exists. He created all things. He knows all things. He knows you. He knows you better than yourself. He knows your family dynamics. He knows everything. He has your future in his hand. He sustains you daily. And beyond the practical matters, and even before the practical matters, we must realize, and Tim Keller said this so clearly, that our wisdom is always, always, always driven by and framed by what we fear most. Let me repeat that. Our wisdom is always, always, always driven by and framed by what we fear most at least as fear is understood in the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord means to live in all of him, to respect him more highly than anything else, his power, his glory, his holiness, to see him as your highest authority, as the one to trust beyond all others, to worship him above all. And if the Lord is not your highest authority, not what you live for, then something else will be. Something else will fill the vacuum of your heart. And whatever that is, whatever you fear proverbially, that is what you worship. And that is what will f- drive your understanding of wisdom because, as the highest authority in your life, because you'll fear not having enough of it. Uh, if you think about money, let's think about money. If money is your wisdom, you're going to fear not having enough of it, you're going to fear losing it. It will dr- drive all of your decisions about your career about how many kids to have, everything. It will even frame the type of counsel you give to others. See, what you fear exercises governing authority in your life, whether wealth or education or achievement or political ideologies. And it will drive you in a direction that you think is wise but is actually foolish. So how does this all apply? What do you fear ultimately? What is most important to you? What can you not live without? If you fear the Lord, your life will be driven and framed by God and his words and his principles. But if you miss this, it's not like you're missing a small thing. It's not a little oops. That's why Proverbs 14.2 says, and I also didn't include this in your list, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death, right? If reputation, if success in the workplace is your most important thing, you will pursue things that seem absolutely wise, but in the end, it will lead to destruction. You'll probably burn out. You'll probably ruin your family. But if you walk in the fear of God, you will know better when to keep your mouth shut and when to open it up. But if you walk in the fear of man, you will not have that wisdom. You'll probably keep quiet when you should speak up and you'll probably speak out boldly with the crowds when you should be suspicious and speak slowly and nuanced. See, what we most fear really directs our plans and decisions. And that's why the the resource here in these questions, I just want us to read through and reflect upon about how the Lord is our greatest resource, not to be manipulated. Of course, he's still God. But in the fear of the Lord, 1426, one has strong confidence and his children have refuge. Do you see that? If we walk in the fear of the Lord, we have confidence and we have refuge, not for us, but for our kids. 14.27, the fear of the Lord, it's not just a protection, but it's a fountain of life. It is a provision. And this provision is protective because it keeps us from turning away to the snares of death. In other words, when you are overwhelmed with joy in the Lord, when he is filling you up, it protects you from so many seductions and temptations in the world so that you can plan wisely and make wise decisions. Fifteen twenty nine. the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Do you understand we prayed this morning the Lord's prayer that because of the work of Christ on our behalf, we who were wicked and kept far off are now welcomed into God's presence because our sin has been paid in full. He sees us as his dear children. He longs for us to come into his presence. He cherishes our prayers. He hears our prayers. The wisest thing we can do in decision-making It's to turn our hearts to God, to cry out to him, to ask for wisdom and counsel. And if we're not doing that, we are sitting ducks for making decisions that are driven by our addictions and idolatry and blind spots. The Lord is a good father who who will meet us in our prayers and clarify the direction we are to take. And then lastly, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous runs into it and are safe. Does that describe your life? Do you see the Lord as a strong tower that you run to and are safe in the midst of chaos, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of danger? This is what it means to have wisdom. So there you have it, the three R's of planning, responsibility, results, and resources. And Solomon was a master of material resources wise about human resources, but the crux of the matter was, is the Lord walking in the fear of the Lord. That's the key resources. And if you don't do that, you don't have a chance of planning wisely and making wise decisions. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And God, we pray that you would make us wise regarding decision-making and planning. Lord, help us to take responsibility as the Proverbs teach us to think ahead, to work diligently, but to wait patiently. Lord, help us, Lord, to commit our work to you. We, we don't know how things are always going to work out, but we can trust you with our decisions, with our motives, with our methods. We can trust you to work through it all and to establish your will. And Lord, help us to be wise and to reach out to others for help and to gain wisdom. And, Lord, help us to understand the difference in results and not compare ourselves to the results of others, which often are fading. But help us to understand what you call us to live for, your kingdom and your glory. And knowing as we do that, even when we go without, even when things don't work out the way we planned or as we expected, we can trust you that the righteous will never be forsaken. They will be fed, they will be cared for, and they will be vindicated. And Lord, we pray that you would be our greatest resources. Forgive us for turning to lesser resources first rather than you. And we pray that you would give us a heart that turns to you in prayer first. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. So help us to run to it and find safety. In Jesus' name, amen.